So if you're beating uh, the other team by 40 points at halftime, is it wrong to run up the score? Or if your kids play youth sports and they don't keep score, is it even a sport? Um, what does a trophy mean exactly if everyone ends up with one? I mean, was Mr. Incredible right when being shamed for possibly not attending his son's fourth grade graduation when he says, it's not a graduation. He's moving from the fourth grade to the fifth grade. And the mom says, well, it's a ceremony. And he says, it's psychotic. I mean, they keep creating new ways to celebrate mediocrity. I think there are many of us who would bemoan this trend. But who's to blame for the trend, really? Interestingly enough, years ago, the famous German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche put the blame square at the feet of Christianity with its moral flaws in its system. You see, for Nietzsche, uh, a morality that prizes things like compassion or moderation or obedience or submission or humility or meekness or pity creates this very kind of weakness. For him, it follows that if God is the good shepherd, and thus we are just sheep, and dare we say obedient sheep, that that gives one a weak moral foundation from the jump. Uh, maybe you've seen the popular Lions Not Sheep merchandise. While probably not uh, meaning the same thing Nietzsche was saying, he would approve wholeheartedly. He actually wrote on it because he said, from the beginning of time, the lions have eaten the sheep. He says, yeah, it's bad for the lambs, of course, but great for the lions. And he says it's a cheap trick that lambs play in society when they begin to make people feel immoral because they're too weak to defend themselves. And in that way, according to Nietzsche, he says the weak are always manipulating the strong with this form of weak Christian morality. Uh, he says the lamb values things like its unimportance, its weakness, its passive nature. He said, why can't the lion just value its strength? I mean, you just hate lions because they're better than you. And he says, this is really how society should go forward. One who followed in his footsteps wrote these words, Christianity is a religion of man. Uh, Christianity is a religion of a man who failed. He died. He was executed at the behest of his own people by an occupying Roman military dictatorship. And yet, since those days are far off, somehow Christ has been made a king who through the church conquers and succeeds in the world. So what should we prize instead, according to this philosopher? He says, instead of submission and compassion and moderation and pity... Strength, cunning, brilliance, wealth, these are true moral foundations. I mean, it is a hard sell, isn't it? Meekness, gentleness, courtesy. I mean, no wonder that when we come to the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness or meekness, that most folks don't get real excited about what they're going to hear. But we want to see this morning, at least first is what it means, and I want us to see it under this heading, gentle giants. Uh, the word here that's translated in the ESV as gentleness, depending on what translation you read, will elsewhere be translated meekness, uh, but it's a notoriously difficult word to define. Uh, it's a word that from the Greek 
uh, we don't have any true synonym for in our language. Not one word will cover the breadth of this particular uh, word that Paul uses, which is why it's translated, even in the ESV, in the various places you find it, it's translated as gentleness or meekness or humility or courtesy, of course, and those things don't all have the same connotation in our language. I mean, courtesy and meekness seem radically different to us, or humility and gentleness and so forth. So what does it mean? Uh, We see first it's Greek usage outside of the New Testament. It's a word that when used in the Greek was used for, for instance, the taming of an animal, the taming of a wild animal, the harnessing of this raw power and making it somewhat useful. And so, you know, an untamed horse has plenty of power but little use. And yet if you can tame that horse... All of a sudden, that power, once under control, becomes something useful and manageable and profitable. Uh, in, the, in the Aesop's fable, the farmer in the sea, uh, which I'm really not a huge fan of his fables, but needless to say, this one, uh, the farmer is uh, tempted to cross the ocean, but he sees just how wild it is and how dangerous, and he says, I guess it's best we don't cross the sea because it is out of control. And the sea speaks back saying, it's not me, it's the wind. The wind is the one that is out of control. I am gentle, using the same word that Paul uses here. And so even in this fable, notice you have the sea, this huge majestic body of water that has all sorts of power. And the sea says, I'm not the one that's wild and out of control. That's the wind that causes me to rage that way. But I harness my power, I keep it under control. That same word can be used of medicine in ancient Greek. You know, again, something that when used in proper dosages, dosages uh, is healthy for us, but if misused, especially in that day, could easily poison the user. And again, so it's something that's powerful, but used in a restrained fashion so that it becomes useful. Aristotle defined it this way, that the gentleman, or the one who is proutes, is never too angry, but is also not one who is never angry at all. He's someone that manages his anger rightly. He's angry at the right things and doesn't lose his cool over the wrong things. And so we see, at least initially, this word that we find in our Greek New Testament is about strength that is under control. It's not, first and foremost, about weakness or carelessness or one who's unaffected by circumstances, but one who, when things come up, makes a temperate use of the power that he has. He has the power, but he controls that power for a proper response at the right time. And we see when the New Testament takes this word up that it grows into the fruit that we have before us this morning. The word has been defined by our lexicons, again, as strength under control, one who possesses power but uses it wisely. Or as one lexicon writes, the quality of not being overly impressed with one's sense or a sense of one's own self-importance. Notice that's why it gets translated as humility sometimes. But the fact is the person is important. The one who's usually called this name is someone who has high rank or importance but restrains that and doesn't use it in a way that lords it roughly over others or shows a certain sort of pomp in his demeanor. So notice gentleness does not flow from weakness or impetus, but impotence, but arises 
first and foremost, from strength. Those who possess it are strong, but they make use of their strength to honor other relationships instead of making much of themselves. They use their strength to honor others who are often weaker instead of making much of themselves. So the word does speak to one who is submissive and humble. James says, receive the implanted word with meekness, which means put yourself in a position where you're submitting to God's word. You're receiving it as one who needs to be under authority. This word speaks to one who is in authority and has power and yet wields that power kindly and compassionately, reigning in his strength for the sake of the weaker. So Paul says, should I come to you with a rod or should I come to you with proutes, with gentleness? Which would you prefer? Or our very text that we're reading here in Galatians will go on to say, when a brother is overtaken with a sin, you who are of the Holy Spirit, you who are spiritual, restore him with gentleness. So again, it's not someone who doesn't care that things are right and wrong. There is a care that there are things that are out of bounds. But he doesn't approach the person as one who is higher than or mightier than or comes with some sort of dominance, but instead comes with care and tenderness. Both Paul and Peter make use of this word when they talk about correcting those who resist the Christian faith or those who are opponents to us, those who don't believe what we believe. He says that we're to make a defense of our faith with gentleness. We are to correct with gentleness. And because we are gods, because we believe that Jesus is king, we don't fight with the same weapons that the world fights with. There's a reason that Nietzsche sees what we offer and says, that is of no interest to me. From a position of strength that God is our God, Christ is our King, we approach others with gentleness. Which is why Paul says, speak evil of no one, avoid all quarreling, be gentle, showing courtesy to everyone. So the opposite of this was one who either knows they're in a position of power, or thinks of themselves highly, even if they don't have a position of power. And because of that, thinks little of others. This one is not gentle or meek. This one does not have this fruit of proud taste. But instead, you'll see these fruits. One who's rude, or abrasive, or harsh, or haughty. And instead of aiming one's strength outside of themselves for others... They use it for themselves and often become bitter and resentful when people don't respond the way that they want. Uh, so every video that you see online that has a quote-unquote Karen, usually it's uh, in this realm right here. And so God calls us in that sense to be gentle. But notice gentle giants. And he calls us to do this because he's a gentle God. That's the next thing we want to see. He's a gentle God. Since this is the Spirit's fruit, then it must be the reality of the God that we serve, that He is gentle. I mean, it's what Jesus says, doesn't He? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, and I am humble in heart. 
This would have driven not only Nietzsche, but the average Roman and Jewish citizen absolutely mad when Jesus said it. I mean, think of Rome and how it acquired its power through dominance and oftentimes through tyranny of different sorts, but surely through power and the sheer use of that power over those who were weaker. To hear a king claim that he comes with gentleness as his banner seems odd at best and surely ridiculous at worst, which is why Paul says the cross of Christ is absolutely folly to the Greeks. They can't stop laughing about it because that's not how kings rule in the world. But the Gospels tell us every Palm Sunday that this king comes to you humble, using the same word, and mounted on a donkey. I mean, who's more powerful than Jesus? Who has more strength than him? I mean, this one is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This one who, though being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be considered equal with God. But notice, instead he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. I mean, what did he do with all of this power that he has? All this strength that is in his possession. He truly is the omnipotent one. He can do whatever he wants. Well, Paul tells us that we need to have the same mind in us that was already in Christ Jesus, which is what? To not look out for your own interests, but also to look out for the interests of others. And that's what Christ does with his power. He harnesses it and uses it to serve those who are in need. He didn't use his strength to dominate and destroy or even to self-promote or self-assert, but to elevate others, and in particular the poor and the weak and the needy and the sin-riddled. In all of his strength, he aimed his meekness, he aimed all of that strength in meekness to others. Notice what the prophet tells us, the bruised reed he will not break. He'll handle it with care. That smoldering wick, he won't put out. He'll make sure that the fire continues. I mean, the full power of the Godhead was harnessed for others. Others who specifically were ill-deserving. And he comes to them and doesn't say, do you see all that I'm doing for you? You'd better appreciate it. But instead he comes meekly and gently and tenderly. So meek that in order to give them what was needed in all of his strength, he humbled himself by becoming a man, by joining himself to our very plight and condition. And what should uh, boggle the mind is that he will remain God and man forever. This isn't a temporary condition that he put on, but that humility of taking to himself a human nature will be his for all of eternity. That is how meek and lowly our God is. And he does so without shame in order to serve us. As we will sing this morning in that hymn that is almost certainly written by John Calvin, but for whatever reason never gets fully attributed to him, uh, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art, a, 
a hymn that came from Strasbourg during the three years that Calvin was in Strasbourg after getting uh, kind of booted out of Geneva and then begged back. But those lines in it that are so wonderful where he says of God, Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. I mean, to consider our God and how many times we have offended, how many times we have shown our ingratitude, and yet over and over he tenderly comes and even when correcting, does so with a gentleness that leads us home. God's compassion and God's love come to us always clothed in his gentleness and his meekness. And therefore, finally, he wants us to be a gentle people. That gentleness calls us and transforms us into gentle people. And so we need to ask ourselves, does this characterize us? Are we meek? Are we those who receive God's will from God's hand submissively? Gently, those who are willing to live under submission. And while in meekness we may get angry when, when others are wrong, do we spend more time lingering over how we've been personally wronged and letting that drive our passions? Do we think much of ourselves and little of others, or are we willing to waive our rights gladly for a good cause? Are we willing to be a nobody or less than something so that other people can be somebody? Are we content and strong enough in who we are in Christ to not be the one who's the center of attention? Or are we busy fighting for our spot and asserting ourselves often and pouting or worse when we don't get our way? You see, the only way to be changed by this and ultimately transformed into this is to know the God of gentleness as he is and to trust him to so trust him that we're willing to be the sorts of people that reflect him you see the meekness of God does not produce weaklings it finds them The meekness of God doesn't produce weaklings, it finds them. And then it helps them by dying for them. And with all the strength of God himself, he becomes weak in our stead and commits himself to us that he'll work the fruit of gentleness into us. He swears by his own name that it will be the case. And it's knowing that tender mercy that makes us strong enough meek enough to be gentle with others. The meekness of God touches and changes abrasive people. I mean, you see this beautifully in Oscar Wilde's children's story, The Selfish Giant. Uh, a story, if you remember it, uh, about children playing in a garden while the giant was away for a seven-year visit to a friend. You know how that goes. Uh, but upon his return, after these seven years, he finds all of these children that have been playing in his garden, climbing in his trees, and so he builds a wall, and he says, my own garden is my own garden. 
And anyone can understand that. I won't allow anybody to play it but myself. And so he builds a high wall around it, and he puts up this notice. Trespassers will be prosecuted. To which Oscar Wilde says he was a very selfish giant. Well, the children are sad because now they have nowhere to play. The streets are too dirty. There's no other growth around. And, uh, you know, time passes. And when spring should arrive, the giant notices as he looks out his window that nothing's blooming as it's supposed to. And then summer comes and the season doesn't change either. And autumn comes and there's no fruit being born as normal. And so he wonders what's going on. And finally, one morning, he hears the most beautiful song and he looks and he sees... At last, all the trees have bloomed. They've borne fruit, and they themselves are singing. All of nature is singing. And why? Because there's children sitting in each one of the tree's branches. Save this one corner of the garden that still looks like winter. It has not transformed like the rest of it. But in that corner of the garden, there's the smallest child among them. He can't quite reach the tree branch, and he's not strong enough to climb, and even the tree is straining to go find him, but he just can't get low enough. And so finally, the giant, moved by this, runs to him. Thankfully, the child's crying so much, he can't see that he's being approached by the giant. And he swoops down, he picks him up, and he sets him in the branch of the tree. And that boy, so grateful, throws his arms around the big giant and kisses him. At the end of that day, the giant is overwhelmed with joy. The children are departing, and as they're all saying goodbye, he notices that the little one isn't there. And the book says he loved him most because he kissed him. And for years, the giant kept his garden open, and day after day he would look, but he never saw that first little one again until years later. He sees him wander into his garden, and so excited again, he runs to him. But as he draws near, he sees that the child is bleeding, and immediately the giant is infuriated. He wants to know who has harmed him, and it reads like this. His face grew red with anger, and he said, Who hath dared wound you? For on the palms of the child's hands were the prints of two nails, and the prints of two nails were on his little feet. Who has dared to wound thee? cried the giant. Tell me that I may take my big sword and slay him. No, answered the child, these are the wounds of love. Who art thou, said the giant. And a strange awe fell on him, and he knelt before the little child. And the child smiled on the giant and said to him, You let me play in your garden, and today you shall come with me to my garden, which is paradise. And when the children ran in that afternoon, they found the giant lying dead under the tree, all covered with white blossoms. While merely a children's story, it clearly encapsulates the point that God comes in meekness, even as a weak one, even as a child, in order to expose our perceived strengths as weaknesses, but not to leave them there, but to gently mold those weaknesses into strength for the sake of others, that we might be willing to be gentle with them, that we might become gentle giants. And when we grasp that, we can begin to become that. When we grasp the fact that God has always dealt gently with you, even when you've been pig-headed and stubborn 
and worse. Even this morning, he calls to you gently to return to him in repentance and faith. To set aside your pride and the distance that you make between others. Because those who are gentle with sinners are so because they know themselves as a sinner among sinners. There is no distance between you and that one that you despise. And the gentle one is strengthened to step toward them and not move away. To be so strong to say how may they help and shoulder that burden. I mean, what did you think your strength was for anyway? I mean, that is the question. It's the question surely before us this morning, but it's the question that comes to us in our humanity. It's what Nietzsche could not understand or wrap his mind around. If you have strength, surely it's for you. But Paul says, you who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. So we close with this. Coming from a book called Tender Mercy, it reads, The more I go on in life, the more I realize that the church will not be rebuilt by popes, crusades, inquisitions, politics, or the like, but by the invisible prayers of the poor and the sick, the screwed up, the marginalized, the bereaved, and so many more of that suffering humanity that goes to Jesus and asks, let me see, please let me walk, let me be rid of that demon that torments me day and night. And he says to each of them, go and sin no more, your faith has healed you. And our healing only brings us to greater humility and an inner strength that we have not sought for ourselves that our healing brings to us greater humility and a strength that we have not sought for ourselves. May that be true of us as we see ourselves in light of who we are, but also in the glory of who God has been for us, a gentle Savior. No harshness, no bitterness, always gentle. May we go and do likewise. Let us pray.